Hi, I'm David Wolliver, and welcome to the XVZF podcast. The story you're about to listen to was told by Haas Clifford on February 27th, 2014 at the Magpie Tap Room in Toronto. The theme of the night was non-trivial, stories about the difficult. So, when I was asked to come along and do this talk, um, the brief was basically non-trivial, talk about something that was difficult, and I figured, you know, I'll definitely do that. That sounds great. It's up my street. I've done lots and lots of difficult things, like some heroically difficult things, and I've accomplished a great deal of difficult things, and it's the reason why I've had some success in my career. And I thought, that's fine. I'll agree to do it, and I'll leave it to the night before to worry about what I'll talk about, because I have this back catalogue of heroically difficult things. And um, so last night, <laughs> I sat and I went through this entire back catalogue of difficult things. And I thought, well, I'll start from the beginning. I went back to one of the big things that got me going in my career, a big break I had, which is where... So I used to, the start of my career, make stuff using a technology that the older of you in the crowd will remember. For, it was called Flash, and it was an interactive <laughs> medium on the internet. Um, back in those days, I got a name for pushing, amongst a number of other people, pushing the limits of this very limited technology. And one of the first things I created was an interactive version of a scene from a Gaspar Noe film called Doberman, in which a motorcycle driver tries to attack a limousine and ends up having a grenade put inside his helmet and his helmet blows up. And this is in the days before Flash supported video and you just couldn't do it. So I knew After Effects, I exported a bitmap sequence and sat with a very painstakingly long, arduous process placing individual frames into a timeline and then put go to and loop and all sorts of frames within um, the, the action script and then created this interactive movie. And you know it, it got me my initial relationship with uh, Macromedia at the time and it was good, it was popular, everybody liked it. But then I thought, you know, that wasn't actually difficult. That was just really painstaking and stupid to have done at the time. That wasn't difficult at all. So then I thought, well, what other things I did? Well, you know, I got a name. I made an, uh, an interactive toy which had a picture of a famous tennis player at the time called Anna Kurnikova, where you, <laughs> at that time, you couldn't affect the contents of a mask through codes. It was a limitation of the Flash player, and I found a way around it. And the way I proved it was by building this interactive toy where you moved a set of those, you know, childish X-ray specs over Anna Kurnikova and view a, a, a different image of her. And it was, you know, it, it was a bit... And again, the, when, to David's point, um, if there's anything that anyone says that makes you feel uncomfortable, I would say, hold on for another five minutes before you make the complaint to David. And so this was good. It went well. It was very successful. And as a result of this, the success that this brought was very significant And if you measure success by views on a web page. And then a book came out. Well, a book was coming along, and I was asked to co-write my first book. And then it led to a number of other books, which I also co-wrote. And then, you know, this wonderful success is very self-reaffirming. And then... I was asked to talk at a conference. So I talked at a conference and was on stage. And the fear of being on stage up against other titans of the industry, of my industry at the time, anyway, other people that worked with this whole technology called Flash, people like Hugo Nakamura and Joshua Davis at the time, I was terrified. So I figured, well, you know, what I have on my side is that I'm very, very funny. Anna Kurnikova. So what I figured was that I could wrap up my presentation with some humor and I'd be really funny and that would, I would be able to get away with the fact that I wasn't these amazing people. And it worked really well and everybody loved it and everybody laughed and everybody clapped. And then wind forward maybe six years, five years. 
this goes on. I create interesting work. I present it at conferences, and everybody loves it. And there's lots of applause, and very many people look at the stuff. It's, you know, when millions of people every month come to view your work on your website, it's very self-reassuring. Even I created an interactive toy called Spank the Monkey, and it was... And... Um, <laughs> As I say, I'm very funny. And that was, you know, millions of people every week to that particular bundle of fun. Um, so this is now four years ago. I turn up in Boston to do a talk at a conference. And in Boston, these wonderful people had a great idea. They said, you know what? We like technology conferences. And we like beer festivals. So let's have a technology conference with a beer festival in it. Actually, it might be the other way around. I don't know really worked that out. But... Um, <laughs> It was awful, it was terrible, and the acoustics were awful, everybody was drunk, nobody paid attention. So I, in anticipation of doing my presentation, removed all of the educational content and just <laughs> filled it with stand-up. And I'm like, you know what, I do the humor, I'm, I'm very, very funny. Um, so I thought, I'll just make it lots and lots of entertainment, and it was. It was basically an hour of stand-up with a technology flavor to it, and it went down very well, and people cheered and swilled beer around, and it was great, and it was, very, again, very self-reassuring, great success. And then somebody came up to me at the end of that talk and said, Hoss, I see you're going to Minneapolis in two weeks. You might want to tone down that presentation. It's the Midwest, after all, and people aren't as liberal as they are here. So I was like, well, I'll take that on board, and I think I agree with you. I turned up two weeks later in Minneapolis, and in Minneapolis, I, on the first night out, arriving there, night before the conference starts, went out with a guy called Dave Schroeder, who was the organizer of the conference, and I mentioned to him, I said, look, Dave, it's been suggested they might want to tone down the talk for the audience here in Minneapolis. And Dave said, and I always remember this to this day, no horse, this is the most liberal part of the Midwest, give them hell. <laughs> and I said, Dave, are you sure? And he's like, yes, horse, give them hell. I went, okay. So between that point and two days later when I did my talk, which turned out to be the keynote, um, <laughs> um, a number of things happened. You're familiar with the term perfect storm. Well, that's what happened. <laughs> now, amongst those things, it ended up with a situation where in the morning of the talk, I was in hospital getting a, a bust arm dealt with, being filled with something they call Vicodin, here we call per Percocet. Um, turning up an hour before my presentation to find my friends were sponsoring it with Heineken for everybody. Um, couldn't possibly turn down the Heineken despite the Percocet. Um, got on stage and I gave them hell. Um, and it was funny and people cheered and everybody laughed and it was marvelous. It was so good. It feels great. And then the next day, um, Somebody complained on Twitter. Somebody said that, that it was a bit too far and it was a bit, it was sexist. It was specifically accused me of being a misogynist. And I was like, well, you know, you can't please everybody. And, and, and yeah, that's unfortunate. I, I don't like that that's happened, but it's one person. And I went and I spoke to Dave. I said, Dave, the, the, the thing with the, the person, and he was like, yeah, actually, do you know what we're going to do? We're going to, I'm going to mention it on stage. I'm going to say, look, I'd like to apologize for anybody that was offended by Hoss's talk. You know, it was, a, it was a bit wild, you know, but I, we are apologized. So I said, look, Dave, you live here. This is Minneapolis. You're, this is your business is here. So look, just lay it on me. Blame everything on me. Just, I, I, I'll, I, you know, I'll, I'll be the lightning rod for this. So he went up and he said, no, there's no need for that. So he, he made an, an apology to everybody. And it was fine. Nothing happened and everything died down. And then I got on a plane to head back to Glasgow. And um, 
arrived back in Glasgow and, and people said, you know, how, how did how did the talk go? Oh, it's great. It's really good. Everybody cheered. It was great. You know, it's, I'm very funny. And then the thing is, it's a 3D journey to get back if you go then via the pub at the end of the airport and go to the park and then go to the cinema and out for a meal. And so it's now Saturday morning. It's three days after the talk. And I, my mobile phone goes and it said, John Davey, who organizes another technical conference in Brighton. And I'm like, well, nobody calls me on a Saturday morning. Nobody calls me at the weekend. Nobody calls me on my mobile. And I was like, John, how's it going? He's like, I can't do a London accent. Oh, Oss, just to let you know, in this difficult moment that I've got your back, and if you want me to go online and say something in your favor, I've got your back. And I'm like, <laughs> John, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. No, no, all this stuff, it's, all, it's out of order, it's out of order. I'm like, I'm, well, th thank, thank you, John, but I've, I've been offline for three days, what are you talking about? He goes, have you not seen Twitter? And I'm like, no, so I, I, I went online and, oh, wow. So I had become an internet hate figure and a huge number of people had who weren't at the original event, the, one of the person that had made a comment and complained at the original event wrote a report about this. And, and you know what? Like all the best, it had... A third of it was true. A third of it was massively exaggerated. And a third of it was just false. But enough of it was true for it to be valid. And if you read this, and I read it, and I'm like, God, that guy's an asshole. That guy is a misogynist. And as a result, much of the feminist movement in North America and then moved on Twitter to call me to be struck off or whatever the equivalent is. There was a campaign for me to, for every conference that I was talking at, for the sponsors of that conference to have their products boycotted. You know, and basically Adobe sponsored every conference I was at. So I'm like, you know, and I was like, well, what are you gonna do? You're gonna have like a day where none of us use Photoshop or something in protest. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's like, you know, because that's, you know, that's quite a funny statement. I'm a very funny man. But the big thing was that I hadn't said anything. I hadn't responded. It had been three days, and the, the conference organizer had gone online, and he had said something. He said, look, you know, I'm really sorry about this. It was the wrong thing to do. I made a mistake. I'm really sorry. And everybody said, this is how PR is done. You get up there instantly, and you apologize, and you make it right. This guy that did the talk, where is he? Where, why isn't he saying anything? So I, you know, phoned up. I Skyped Dave, um, and I said, Dave, look. This is this has gone on. I've gone crazy, and I said, "Look, I'd just like to remind you, Dave, that you said give them hell." And I'm like, "Look, I'm, I don't need to tell anyone that. I, I'm, I'll go online and I'll explain that it wasn't the right thing to do." So I posted something online, and do you know it was considered a non-apology. I think people were looking for me to prostrate myself. Ultimately, what happened was I managed to defend it greatly. I was really proud because I'm really clever and I'm very funny, and. What happened on Twitter was that somebody called me for, to be waterboarded, and somebody else then called for me to be set on fire. And then he was challenged, like, oh, no, no, you've taken that too far. And he's like, no, I'll give you the matches to set that guy on fire. And then somebody says, I'll give you the fuel to put on that guy to set that guy on fire. We'll burn his house down. And that was a tipping point, and it was a scary point. And, uh, I didn't find it, I was like, this is it. I've won now, because ultimately, the righteous cause has been self-defeated. And it did. It was put the cause out because everybody turned around and said, oh, no, no, this has gone too far, and it all stopped. And I won. It was great. <laughs> I put a comment online, which my, my statement, and there was some, you know, I didn't, don't block comments on my web, and I felt awesome. It was like, I've conquered, and I've been successful. A number of people within the, the internet community came to my rally and said, yeah, Hoss, 
you know, he, you know, where are you? Hoss is still here in the scene, and now we've got his back, and Adobe got my back, and all these people. And I was like, yeah, I absolutely got that. And then I got a comment on my blog from somebody, and and everything changed. I got a comment from somebody that said that they were abused as a child, and they'd been through a terrible life, and what had happened, or what they'd read about what had happened with me, had taken a box that they thought they had had buried a number of years ago out and caused them pain. And I suddenly realized that it didn't matter whether I was right or whether I was wrong. And it didn't matter that I was given permission to do what I did. And it didn't matter whether I'm funny or not. Ultimately, what I did hurt somebody. And it made me question the actual what I was doing. And it did the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life, which was questioned in the face of success whether what I was doing was virtuous, whether what we were doing was right, whether this wonderful success and everything being awesome was actually the right thing to do. And so I took everything offline. I took all my sites offline. And, and to people from the outside, I think it must have looked like a mild breakdown. Uh, I had an epiphany. I realized, you know, maybe there's more to this. And it's the most difficult thing I've ever done. It's the most non-trivial thing I've ever done is to actually, in the face of massive success and having a wonderful career and everything going right, stop and actually say, do you know what? It's success is blinding me to the fact that this might not be the right thing to do. Wind forward to now, it's definitely changed who I am. A pendulum swings one way to the other way. I completely changed and I decided I'm not actually that funny anymore. I'll drop that. And I did a presentation um, Sean Pucknell, who organized an FITC conference here in Toronto, invited me to Amsterdam to do a talk after this. And I said, I don't think you want me to come along. There's this thing that happened in Minneapolis. And he said, no, I know that. I know they did. But I know you. I believe in you. You're a good person. I want you to come and do a talk. And he persuaded me to come out. And I wrote a talk called Things I Have Learned. And I sat, and there was no comedy. There was no glitzy lights. There was no dancing on stage. There was no music. It was a series of text slides where just shared things I had learned in life and the biggest thing I had learned in life. And there, there's a bunch of stuff about always open the assets early, early in a project that you get. There's a bunch of functional things, you know, it's like, so that when that guy, when the client says to you, you know, how's the job going? And you realize that you told him everything's going fine for the last week and you, he didn't attach the zip file with the assets. You know, there's some really valuable stuff in there. But in amongst there was the biggest thing I learned was, and the hardest thing to learn was create your own yardstick for success. It doesn't matter who thinks you are or you aren't successful or who thinks you're running 10 minutes over your talk, a uh, thing like this, and, or how you're judged, you know, and ultimately you know, the pendulum swims, swings back and you realize you can still be funny, but I'll never be that asshole that was then. And it's a tremendous, tremendous feeling of release. I saw a TED talk once where somebody talked, who was a nurse for people that are in the last stages of their life that are dying, and they said, Nobody's really their true self until they're dying. Within the last weeks of their life, you turn into this, the obnoxious asshole you actually are because it doesn't matter. You're going to die and you tell everybody what you really think about them. And I actually think that's not something that just happens in the last week of your life. I think across life, you gradually become more of that person that is the true version of yourself that doesn't try to wrap yourself up and dress yourself up and be funny for the sake of it. And for me, that moment of epiphany, that moment of the difficult stage of questioning, do you know what? It's not enough just to be funny. It's actually, there's value in what I do beyond that. And that was it. Thank you.
that was Haas Clifford. Haas currently lives in Toronto, where he's VP Director of Technology at One Method. Talk Audio was recorded by Tavi Burns. Laura Satula was greeting at the door, and our bartender was Amelia. XVZF is a project by David Wooliver and Philip Mendoza Vieira. XVZF is a regularly occurring night for Toronto tech workers to come together and share true personal stories. Find out more at xvzf.io.